0: Have you ever felt like you had to choose between two sides of an issue, or two groups of people, or two ways of thinking? Have you ever felt like the world was divided into black and white, good and bad, right and wrong, us versus them? You're not alone, we all have. And we are here to challenge that mindset and to explore a different way of looking at reality, a way that is more complex, more nuanced, and more loving. Welcome to Reflections on Now, a podcast where we explore the things happening in our culture through the lens of love. I'm Cody Jensen, an artist and a creative director at City Church. Joining me today are Matt Nelson, lead pastor, and Rachel Sanders, teaching pastor and executive of production at City Church. In this season, we are going to dive into some of the most pressing and complex issues of our time, such as the Israeli-Palestinian War, the cult of Christian nationalism, and the upcoming election. We are not here to give you easy answers or to tell you what to think. We are here to have honest, respectful, and meaningful conversations that challenge us to grow and learn from each other. We are here to practice non-dualistic thinking. Which is where we want to start this episode. What is non-dualistic thinking? Well, it is a way of looking at reality that is not based on either-or, but on both-and. It is a way of embracing the mystery and ambiguity of life without falling into judgment or fear. It is a way of seeing the beauty and value in every perspective without losing our own. It is a way of living in love, not in fear. Imagine looking at a forest. Dualistic thinking focuses on categorizing the trees. Tall, short, green, brown, pine, oak, Non-dualistic thinking, however, sees the forest as a whole, its ecosystem, the interplay between trees, plants, wildlife, and environment. It understands that each element is part of a bigger picture and that the diversity and balance of the forest are essential for its health and survival. Or consider a coin. Dualistic thinking sees only heads or tails. It thinks only one side of the coin is right and the other side is wrong. But non-dualistic thinking sees the entire coin, heads, tails, and the edge that connects them. This approach doesn't force us to choose over one side or the other. Instead, it invites us to see how both sides contribute to a larger, more nuanced truth. It's about widening our lens, Embracing complexity and understanding that sometimes the answers of life's questions aren't just yes or no, this or that, but a rich blend of many truths. Non-dualistic thinking is not only a way of thinking, but it's also a way of being. It's a way of living in harmony with ourselves, with others, and with God. It is a way of following the example of Jesus who showed us how to love beyond boundaries, labels, and differences. It is a way of experiencing the amazing, wonderful, beautiful, and inspiring reality that God has created for us. So, Matt, Rachel, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this topic. What's on
1: your mind? What does this make you think about? Where to start? Where to start? (laughs) Yeah, I think we maybe picked this subject because so many topics right now in our current culture, go back to this, yeah. this struggle of, um, holding different truths simultaneously in a culture that wants to see either heads or tails, like you said, instead mm-hmm. of saying both sides, uh, we just struggle right now in our current context to be able to do that without that, how can we be self-reflective? How can we really love? Well, how can we, you know, see, uh, our enemies, you know, through the eyes of Christ, if we're not willing to hold different truths and tensions simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And we could pick a hundred different topics right now that go back to this idea.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, as we've already said, the dominating, you know, narrative of our day is dual thinking. It's uh, pick a side, tell me your views on this thing, which basically means, or if you put another way, like, I want to know what camp you align with so that I can see if we hate the same people,
0: <laughs> right? <laughs>
2: um, you on my team, are you not on my team? And I think it's, I mean, so easy to get baited into this because like I said, it's the dominating narrative. It's the, the loud road says that there are two options, but almost all of the time there is a third more contemplative, you know, thoughtful, nuanced, way um to approach something with an honest conversation but you know that doesn't make the headlines uh that's it's not preferred by you know the powers that be Mm -hmm. because it doesn't make a splash it doesn't make the money so dual think is always going to be preferred by power because it keeps the tribes together it keeps the machine rolling like like it does you know And I think it's hard because when you have little kids, dual think is how it works when you're small. It's like, this is right. This is wrong. That's hot. Don't touch that. That's cold. You know, like there's, it is kind of when you're teaching and when you're growing, it, it, it tends to start black and white, but as, as we grow, as we get into the world, things get more complex and it's not so, you know, dual sided.
1: Yeah. I think we're going to talk about obviously Israel-Palestine, the current conflict. And I even thought about, before we can really be honest about that conflict, we have to be honest about these social dynamics that are at work right now Mm -hmm. in, in our current culture. And just, you know, when you have this kind of dualistic way of thinking, then you see something like this conflict that has so many like layers of complexity and you want to simplify it to somebody is right and somebody's wrong? Right. That's an oversimplification. That's impossible because it's one of the most complex, like global crisis right now that I can remember, that dates back centuries. That's layered in um, complexity and religion and land and whose rights and um, oppression. And yet here we are. We're like, well, you know, Israel's right, Palestine's right. We want to take limited information. We want to come to conclusions really quickly. We want to pick a side, right? Mm -hmm. See, these are the social dynamics that are at work Mm -hmm. that make us unable to see things how they are. I mean, this is what's infuriates me about politics. It's like you get embedded and ingrained in an, in an idea or an ideology. It makes you unable to self critique. Mm -hmm. It makes you unable to see what's good and bad in yourself and someone else. Because now it's like, I have a team, I have an enemy. And I'm going to seek to destroy you or overcome you at all costs. Which makes life
0: way simpler. Yes. We're just always trying to simplify everything of like, instead of me actually learning and sitting with these topics and sitting in nuanced truth and contemplating them, it's like, oh, my tribe is the the left and whatever they think I think. And that just makes life simple for me, Mm which we're all looking for how to simplify our life. But ultimately uh, like Rachel said, the powers that be and the people who are making money off of us, they want to keep us divided and thinking this way so they can, can stay in power and continue making money off of our
1: divided nation. Yeah. I think these social dynamics you just talked about are also like, we get our identity from identifying with, with a group of people. Mm -hmm. When you get your identity from those things, then right. You, you no longer become self-reflective on, on other groups. There's an in group, there's an out group, right? Yeah, and so that's what's currently at play, I think, across our country in every way, is we can no longer be self-reflective or self-critique ourselves, especially um, if we have a certain group. Even if I were to look at the other side of, you know, who my enemy was or the out group, and I was to be reflective and give them a compliment, that now I weaken my own tribe, right, mm-hmm. somehow by doing that, mm-hmm. and so you know, it, it is, it's like we, we can no longer be reflective and loving, build bridge, be peacemakers because we're so bu- but, uh, busy trying to destroy each other.
2: It finds its strength in distance and the, uh, the other side that's in the walls that we put up then enable being able to like really dehumanize people. Um, because, I have built this, whether a literal wall when we're talking about, you know, countries and, uh, you know, conflict in that way, or just emotional like walls and distance between. So now this is not a image bearer of God. If we're talking from a Christian perspective, um, this is someone that I need to defeat in this, you know, war or argument or, you know, whatever. And so the strength of, the the distance dehumanizes i was thinking about like a small version of this um not in an evil way but i grew up in a small town no stoplight very small town and so spent the first 22 years of my life uh, living in that town and then i moved away okay. I didn't move to like some big, huge, like I didn't move to New York city. All right. I moved first to Ulaga, which is another small town, but I, I removed myself from where I had been the whole first part of my life. And just the, the move of my circle is now bigger. Um, my church ended up being different. Um, and so then just, the addition of more people in my life, different perspectives from anyone up until that point, pretty much my whole life was around people who thought the same way that I thought grew up the same way that I grew up. Um, And so I think just the the distance kept me from really knowing things that I would have stood so strong on. But now, you know, all these years later, and now um, even circle even bigger, like it just changes the lack of distance changes um, you, if you let it to be able to see different sides of a story, understand things in a different way. Um, maybe my opinion doesn't change on it, but I can begin to step into what it looks like to hold things in tension.
1: I, I think of how much of the New Testament and the Gospels is Jesus yeah. kind of tearing down tribal identities and doing it in a way that would tick off the in-group and you know blow people's minds. I mean, we... We're so familiar in Christian circles for the Good Samaritan, we don't think of it's like, you know, yeah. it's, it's the good Muslim, it's the good Palestinian, it's the good... It's whoever your out group is, put them in there and then be offended that Jesus would use them in a way to say they found the kingdom, right? Yeah. I mean, so he does this constantly in ways, and we struggle to do that in ourselves, you know, when we create these tribal identities, these in groups, out groups, you know, it's like, I, I joke around, I mean, being from Norman, Oklahoma, growing up my whole life, Oklahoma Sooner fan. I mean, it's so funny. Like you can't talk about the Texas Longhorns. Like no OU fan can be like objective about it. Like all I can see is how much we dislike them. Right. And it's like, it's all you can see. And so when you ask for my opinion, my opinion, even if they're a good team, is going to be like, yeah, they're trash. You know, <laughs> you know? This is <laughs> yes. a funny way to kind of go about it, but it's like, we do that in. All kinds of ways because mm-hmm. we formed our identity around this certain tribe. They're our group. Yep.
2: A piece of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus said, you've heard it, that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And we want the sun to be shining on the people who are right (laughs) and it to be rainy on those who are wrong and for it to be very clear and clear lines. And that's just, that's just not what we see in, in Jesus, you know, like he's uh, a master of all things so that we know he's a master of holding things in tension. And I mean, one of the most frustrating things is he never gives a clear answer to basically anything, you know, it's like, just tell me what you're trying to say. And then he launches into a story. You here's, know? A like, you. <laughs> yes, here's a parable for you. Here's a parable. So I think that that is just a beautiful way that he's just, you know, not giving us exactly what we want because that is ultimately growing us into deeper human beings.
1: Yeah. You, you talked about what dehumanizing, loving your enemies, I and mean, we could go on and on what, these kind of social identity and tribal identities do to us they you know we can't see the log in our own eye Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know we only see the speck in our brother and sister's eye we could go on and on about you know this countercultural way of truly what does it mean to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you when there's in groups and out groups in your life whenever you've drawn hard lines it really is i think the ways of the kingdom become no longer possible for you right it's like the ways of Jesus that He's called us to, like we do. We, you're, no, you're nothing more than your opinion. You're not a human being made in the image of God to be valued, to dignity, honor, love. Mm-hmm. It's, no, I have a pos- position. This is my view. This is my group. You're not in it. I spent a couple of
0: years in New York City, and one of the things that they talk about of the New York City subway system is they call that the great equalizer mm-hmm. because... In New York, you are crammed into all of this space together, and everybody has to ride the subway. It's a millionaire next to a homeless man, next to a drug addict, next to a celebrity, you know, next to, you know, just normal, you know, Joe. And we're all there. We're all uh, laid on the L train. And the great equalizer of just being in one space together just breaks down those barriers of like, oh, wait, this isn't... In, in group, out group, we are all just humans going about our day.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's moments throughout human history, U.S. history, where we've had to like, I mean, even 9-11 was a moment where like now that we're all under threat, there's like this common ground that we find ourselves in, right? Mm-hmm. And trying to trying to find what are the places where we, you know, can overlap and, um, you know, find unity. And you see that certain, a lot of times it's through, difficult things it's through a catastrophe you know it's through a disaster it's you know all of a sudden now people are like i need you you need me now you're no longer an opinion now you're human flesh and we got to work together yeah because we were that the the
0: disaster or
1: the tragedy it gives us a
0: new collective common enemy it's that now we uh, we have something else to focus on together and that is the disaster that happened we need to you know clean up the May 3rd tornado, you know, or whatever it is. But once that's cleaned up and once that's gone away and now we're all back to our normal lives, we all need new enemies. And our political parties give us a new enemy to look at. Even our religious systems give us new enemies to look at. And another thing that I was thinking about within just like these in groups, out groups, and wanting these clear cut answers, we also want that for ourselves whenever we walk into a church and we want to know how do I get to heaven essentially and it's like what do I license versus legalism and it just gets into what can I do and what can I do sure. what do I need to do in right. order to be a good person what do I not need to do you know in order not to go to hell and we just want all of these things to be black or white whenever obviously as we mature in faith and mature in our uh, Christian walk all of those things start to get more and more and more gray yeah. down to the point that it's each individual's
1: convictions and in the way the spirit is
0: speaking to them.
1: Well, in my context, it's people walking in, Pastor. What's your stance on LGBTQ issues? Mm-hmm. You know, right. are you fully affirming? You know, open and affirming? Then I start to have a conversation. What they want is a statement,
2: mm-hmm.
1: yes or no. Give me a statement. They don't want a conversation. It's not a nuanced thing for them. It's not a complex issue. It's just where do you fall, mm-hmm. right? I mean that's that, yeah. that's, that's difficult, mm-hmm. <laughs> impossible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. So, I guess the question is, how do we lean into a different way? <laughs> how do we? I mean, you mentioned one of the, you know, main things is that happens um, when you think in a dual way um, is the inability to self-critique. Right. So let's just take it down to the context that we're in and that we live and operate in, you know, with the church, obviously, um, the church and. Bring it down even more than that. The American church could use some critique. Um, what is our, what's our fear? Paul was here. We'd be getting a letter. Yeah. 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 So I think what's the fear, what keeps us from wanting to do that? And how do we do that? Well.
1: Hmm. And if we can figure that out, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> a I, lot of <laughs> I, and not to oversimplify things this is going to sound maybe oversimplified or over spiritual, but you know, we talked about this desire for control and power and we see that at play today. I think in people's lives and politics, we've been discipled to be like the in group, you've got to rise up and in order to do that, someone else has to, has to go down.
2: Mm-hmm. That
1: is not the way of the kingdom. Right, And so I think, again, this is going to be oversimplifying things, but an incredible lack of humility, even among the people of God, yes. to come towards issues in love and humility and to say, I don't have all this figured out, so I'm going to listen, and we're going to have conversations instead of coming in and saying, I don't even know really what I think about this, but I've already developed an argument. I'm going, I'm going to talk more than I'm going to listen. I'm going to come in looking for my viewpoint, we have to come in with a heart of humility, yeah. right? So i got to be able to hold your understanding and your experience and, and your viewpoint and really like actively listen to be able to to see what how you got there. Mm-hmm. That's just, I don't know, it's just, where is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, most people walk into a conversation
0: with their defenses up and they are immediately threatened by anything that is different than what they've come prepared with essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I I mean, I, that is definitely one of the things that I've seen is like dualistic thinking, I think, um, comes from arrogance and leads like the fruit of it is more arrogance. And then on the other side, like when the attempt to hold two things at once, non-dualistic thinking, you know, really has to come from humility and then leads to more, humility.
1: Yeah. I, I'm I'm waiting for that moment. <laughs> this is my political rant for the day. If you've been around me very long, it's not that I hate politics. I hate our current situation that we're in yes. and what it's become and how it's discipled our country and even people in our church. And I'm waiting for that political candidate to be able to look across in a debate and say, um, you know what I really value about what you bring to the table? This. Mm-hmm. And what I maybe disagree with is this, but I like we can... We can admit uh, and be honest about what's good in each other, right? We don't have mm-hmm. to always just tear down. We that that is now it's like you're not powerful if you are honest about somebody else's good things and that they bring to the table. We can't do that. It's like you're unable to do that because it's a sign of weakness. And we do that now in all places of our life. We can't can't self-critique, we can't be honest, we can't hold things in tension.
2: Yeah. And I think just there's a, a fear maybe internally or, you know, with the organization as a whole or whatever. Um, well, I'll speak from my own perspective and like for the church in particular of like all, you know, many years ago or whatever, whenever I would went through what I would consider a deconstruction. Now I didn't have that language at the time, but when I started to really like, I went through my, I hate the American church season, you know, I think we, everybody goes through that. Um, but during that time like i just kept coming up against i mean i was coming at it from now i look back and i was just so naive and just in my 20s and all the things but i think there was like such resistance from my curiosity from asking questions as if i started to pull on the sticks the whole thing was gonna like collapse and fall and i think per i i felt that internally it was like if i pulled too many of these this whole thing might come crashing down um, and I felt that from other people, like leaders, people around me, like our belief and the gospel of Jesus Christ is like fragile in some sort of way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so there was like a fear behind, um, my questions right. and, um, I, I, kept coming up against that. I felt that from other people and I felt that, you know, from myself. So, um, not that there is a black and white answer, but I definitely think that that is a big part of it is the fear of
1: fear. I mean, that's what fundamentalism at heart is. We have to hold this up. It is fragile. And if we're not holding this up and fighting and contending for it, so we see the culture around us as something that we have to fight against, Mm -hmm. not something that we engage and love and integrate into. It's something that we're holding up against because if we let this go, then everything else, Mm -hmm. you know, falls apart. Yeah. And, uh, um, we know that that's not effective. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Making disciples mm-hmm. at loving people well. Uh, what you do is you, dev- you you further build tribes of us against you, right? Mm-hmm. Whenever that mentality. But I mean, I think that's even what a lot of people who are deconstructing push back against is yes. this like idea that man, the gospel is fragile, and it's and not.
2: I, yeah, and I think what what happens is is then I can't I can't um, self critique from the inside of the church as a, as an insider, if you will, in quotations. And so I'm then forced outside because I can't get anybody to, you know, answer my questions or have a voice or, you know, whatever. And these people who are in this fragile place wanting to, um, uh, ask questions and then deconstruct, find themselves on the outside and then they form a new set of whatever and then they they come back from the outside as a critique of the church which causes all kinds of right. uh that's not helpful either you know it sends them to a place to where now i am i'm outside and the only way i can t- critique is from the outside and just you know bash all things you know church right. related you know you know what i'm saying yeah. like it it sends us outside because i can't do it inside
1: there is a tendency even for us, when we take sides, I, I see this especially in kind of conservative evangelicals right now. They develop such a stance uh, for what they're against, right? For what we're what we feel like is threatening us, that we actually believe that if we we are okay abandoning the ways of Jesus, because if we don't fight against this, we're going to lose, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to lose our grip. So we'll abandon. The ways of Jesus, the ways of the kingdom, what we read in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, because we really do feel like um, it's slipping through our fingers. Like secularism and, you know, this woke culture is growing, and we have to fight against it. And I find it so intriguing that it's, you know, this deception of that it's ultimately power. It is. It goes back to this idea of like, man, when you feel like power is slipping, and this is, I mean, we can read this in the Gospels. This is the why, This is the reason Jesus was crucified. <laughs> you know, it's like um, come against the powers that were. But you know, I, I see that today, and, and I can, you know, as somewhat of an evangelical conservative, I have to be able to look at my own in group some somewhat and critique, and and that is the critique. Is there some of us that we have sold our soul, like we've abandoned the ways of Jesus um, for power control? also not asking is there things about the progressive
0: woke culture that we need to learn from and bring along with us instead of labeling everything as wrong because we're right obviously and actually play together of what is the nuanced truth that we're all carrying which i think is where where we're going with this conversation is holding multiple truths at the same time Mm. that in the israeli-palestinian conflict that there is the truth that the Hamas has attacked Israel, and there is the truth that Israel is uh, um, clearly fighting back with all of their might. Um, And both of those truths don't have to cause you to pick a side and fly that flag above all other
1: flags. If we're going to dive into this kind of topic of Israel and Palestine... I think the thing that i I struggle with right now in this narrative that's being painted of it is you have these certain groups of people i mean you have all of these palestinian um kind of marches that are going on right now protests people standing up um for them that israel is the not the oppressed they're the oppressor Um, you have the side of the church which we can get into this later if you want to why does the church you know, pretty much always give Israel a blank check to kind of do whatever they want because they're God's special people. And it's almost like Israel's our lucky rabbit's foot that, you know, as long as they're on our side, then we're gonna be fine in the end. And so you you said just a second ago, we are unable to actually see the realities that on a day in October, you know, a small minority of Palestinians, mostly Hamas, went in and killed, massacred over a thousand Israelis and Jews in one day um, which is horrendous and unthinkable. We also can't hold the tension that as a result um, Israel has gone into the Gaza Strip and areas around and uh, not followed the ways of proper you know conflict and you know thousands of men, women and children in what pretty much is a genocide in right. response right? right Can both of those things be true? Yeah. That's what makes this so difficult is the question now was, who is the oppressed and who the, who is the oppressor? When you look at Israel and the surrounding areas, it actually, it's, it's unique because Israel becomes like the oppressor in those areas. You zoom back to the entire globe and Israel is the oppressed because everybody, this anti-Semitic um, ideology has been going on for as long as the Jews have been around, right? So again, this layered complexity of issues like this, but people groups form their identity or they form their opinion, we get together and we only see one side of the coin. Mm-hmm. Like there's only one side of this. It's only the Israelis are practicing genocide on the Palestinians Hamas. Right? So that, what do we do with that? What do we do with that reality? What do we do with that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Put that right back. into <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, that is that is my genuine question. Is uh something like this. I mean, personally, it just I feel so heartbroken and yet small and unable to know like how to move forward or what to what to do. Um right. as you know, a person, most likely like the majority of people that are gonna be listening to this. And so like how do you come in with a non-dualistic view of things but also speak truth to power, also stand in the fact that like, I mean, I think I I heard um, a stat of like every 15 minutes a child is dying and the amount of children that um, are, you know, Palestinian children that have been killed and, and the, I mean, it's just how do you right. enter into it in a way that is like I'm not trying to make an enemy of either side, but something has to change. Right. This can't keep going on. Um, and I think that that the the response of it, especially the you know younger generation is obviously clearly you can see you know on social media and all the things the dynamic is strongly mostly pro Palestine. I think that their zeal of like wanting to do the right thing you know leads them to the streets and all of that, which ultimately is a good thing. How do you harness that and like do that well?
1: I think it was about 10 years ago, I took my first trip to Israel. Uh, as a young pastor who'd grown up in the church, you develop these understandings based on their theology, and I'd grown up in this charismatic Pentecostal circle of dispensational eschatology where Israel is, is almost like this Zionism, Zionism, that Israel can do whatever they want to do because they're God's holy people, and they're a significant part of you know the end times and how that plays out. Since then, I, I've changed my theology. I've developed my theology and what I believe on that. But I go into Israel with all this understanding. Well, I'm, I'm in Jerusalem with my good friend, who's a Jewish rabbi, and I'm seeing his perspective of this. And I'm at the, the Western Wall, and you have the Dome of the Rock right there. So the two holiest places in the world, literally back to back to each other, two people groups. It's the melting pot of the world. And I'm just immersed in the complexity of religious ideologies and people groups and centuries of history. And then, you know, me and, and and my pastor, we actually, we get in a car, we drive across, you know, the wall into the West Bank into Bethlehem, which is in Palestinian territory. Mm-hmm. And we spend the afternoon at the Bethlehem Bible College with Palestinian pastors, leaders, and it was a completely different perspective. Mm-hmm. So for the first time, like I'm enmeshed on I get to see this this issue from two totally different perspectives, and it sent me into this understanding that this is not simple. It's not clear-cut, right? There is oppression from both sides. There are issues that both of them are willing to admit. Um, we were literally driving in a car along the wall, and our Palestinian pastors would show us where the the – The Israelis would, you know, move the wall around to make sure that the Palestinian territories didn't have any natural resources. So they would never rise up in power. Mm -hmm. Literally, while I was there that day, there was a rioting in the streets that broke out. It escalated to the place where people were shot, where teenagers, Palestinian teenagers, were revolting against the Israeli forces, just saying, we have no future. We have no education. You've put your thumb on us to the place where there's no reason for us to live. What are we supposed to do? Yeah. You know, this is where it's not just what somebody told you or someone, what you read or what you see on the news. Now it's, it's flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. You know, and that afternoon we get in, you know, our, my Jewish rabbi friend's car and we drive to his house in the West Bank in a settlement where right below him is a Palestinian settlement. Well, he's up on the hill in a Jewish settlement. And it's like two people groups who live next to each other who have no interaction and hate each other, who are occupying the same land. Yeah. And I've been there numerous times since then. I feel like I have like a master's degree in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and I feel like I'm still as lost as ever. You know, I mean, it it really is that complex.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I feel like uh, as as I've been just living my life and preparing for knowing we were gonna have this conversation on a podcast... um, it's like as I've as I've lived my life, I, I decided a few years ago that I'm just not going to watch the news because it's it's not healthy for me. It doesn't provide it doesn't bring joy or any sort of flourishing to my life. It doesn't so spark I, joy. Yes, mm. I, I'm know. reading a condo. <laughs> yes. That out of here, <laughs> no. uh, and so it's like I have found that if it's important enough for me to know, I will end up knowing it. But with with this conflict in particular, it's like even if I was to read. All the news and watch all the videos and read all the books, I'm still so very far away from truly understanding Mm -hmm. this conflict that is thousands of miles away from my home that goes back thousands of years. Where I'm like, I don't even. I don't even know how to talk about it or why I should even have an opinion. Like maybe I just get cynical or something, but it's like, I see people in Tulsa, Oklahoma out, you know, a pro Palestinian protest or a pro Israeli protest. And I'm just like, why? Why? Like, why are you out in the streets yelling? to no one, like, nobody's listening to you. It's like Benjamin Netanyahu is, you know, off doing his thing. The only thing that's ever going to change this conflict is going to be two men sitting in a room coming to some sort of actual understanding, not some, like, young people screaming in the streets. But, you know, I don't know. You could get into conversation about how that could create a ripple effect and a change that, you know,
1: actually brings, you know, I don't know, some sort of lasting change. But I'm just like, I don't know anything. And I I, I agree with you. I think... Part of this, too, is all the misinformation that exists. You have to be able to filter through it, you know, all, all in the news and all of those things. But then it's, you know, it's it's not you, you want to be able to bring awareness to things that need to be bring awareness to. I mean, mm-hmm. like what's happening right now, there needs to be an awareness of, you know, what Hamas has done to innocent people groups and the Israelis. And there has to be awareness of what Israel's response has been. Because when you're talking about lives, it's hard to sit back and be like, well, there's nothing I can do, which I know that's not what you're saying. But at the same time, it's like we can't grab onto both of those. We just grab onto one of them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We grab onto one narrative, one story, one truth. That becomes our mantra, our motto, our rallying cry. And we're totally oblivious, oblivious to the other side of things. That's, that's what I feel like so difficult you know, in situations like this, it's, yeah, how do you, how can you set back? In fact, I, I think um, there's a rabbi, Sharon Browse, she recently critiqued the Israelis for their response to this. So she's a Jewish rabbi who is willing to step in the middle of this and, mm-hmm. and like look around. And she says, how, you know, if we don't take the Palestinian suffering seriously, how do we expect the rest of the world to take our suffering seriously? Yeah. Like if we can't mm-hmm. even see what we're doing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: this is. I mean, I don't know if we want to go here on this or not, but like Israel is looking and saying, we've been, what's happened to us is people have been brutal towards us and they want us extinct. And we can go back, you know, less than a century ago where, um, millions of Jews were, were slaughtered and murdered. And so it's, it's recent in their memory, the trauma, yeah. since people are responding to us with brutality, we now can respond in br- brutality. This goes back to earlier when I said about Christians, it's like, we'll lay down the ways of Jesus because if we feel like we don't, we're gonna lose power and control. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Israel's doing right now. They're like, okay, if we sit back and we allow this to just exist, we won't exist. And so we're justifying our brutality because now we're threatened. Mm-hmm. And i just, I, before I point a finger at anybody else, when you are threatened is usually when you're gonna respond with fear and brutality. Right there's a lot of Second Amendment people uh, who are against Second Amendment. Who, if somebody broke into their house, they would grab their gun and you know mm-hmm. do whatever it takes because I feel threatened. Right? That's what Israel's doing right now, and they they're justifying their their actions because look, what if we don't? Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is hard because is there anything harder in life than loving your enemy? Yeah. When you feel like you know your very existence is being threatened. I mean, that may be the hardest thing ever to do. Yeah, the, what that makes me think about is
0: just that pain that is not transformed is transferred. And just mm. how that that I was thinking about just we read these things in the news and, you know, the young people and all of us are just bombarded with videos coming from a war zone where it's like we don't have the amount of empathy needed to actually see all of this stuff And then we go out in the streets and we yell and we scream and we, you know, create a a common enemy to come against because it takes, Jesus teaches us to sit and to ponder and to transform all of the hurt Mm -hmm. for the world. And it, obviously the ways of Jesus are never easy. And so it's much easier to just take that and go transfer it to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And then it just continues to snowball for thousands of years where everybody is, you know, just fighting. And honestly,
2: just not to blanket statement, everybody that's doing that but there's uh that knee jerk reaction makes me feel a little bit better it's a little bit of you know virtue signaling as well of like um i'm on the right side of this i feel this way you know whatever look how you know strong and good i am and that makes us feel better um but i think like one of the main questions that i would ask him mean, i have two teenage girls so like um, let's be honest and say that the majority of their formation comes from TikTok at this point, and if if not, if not um guided in a different way. <laughs> their theology, how they are supposed to think about the world, how they're supposed to think about, you know, global things of the world. And that is the majority of that generation, you know, too. Of like my first question would be like, how are you being formed? what are you being formed by? We are all being formed. Um, And so if you have a strong opinion on something, if you feel like I need to go out to the streets and preach something, how have you been formed into that viewpoint? What are you taking in? Are you only taking in what you feel like is your natural You know, bent or response? Do you only watch and listen to CNN? Do you only watch and listen to Fox News? Like, how are you being formed? Is it well rounded or is it very squared off? And I think that that's a really good place to self reflect and start of understanding my formation. We use that term a lot in, like, obviously spiritual formation, and I, you know, everything is spiritual. So this, our lives aren't categorized. My political self is myself. Like it's not a different part of me. And so like, how are you being formed and taking a good, honest look at that and realizing and understanding how that leads me to the voice that I have?
0: Yeah. The way that I think about that is you're a product of your inputs, Mm -hmm. where you're a product of your environment in the same way that wherever you are born and in the actual geographic location you're born, into the family of origin, the people that you grew up with, the school systems that you're a part of, the news that you take in, and then into now where we are all on the internet in some fashion. Whatever inputs that we're taking in is what is discipling us and what we're formed around. And so you are a product of your inputs, you're a product of your environment, and it's so easy to be completely blinded to that, to just move through the world thinking that this is the truth, this is the one and only truth because it's the only truth that I know. So how? I mean, it it's almost like a a spiritual revelation has to go come because it, you do, you don't you can't even form the question to break outside of that mm-hmm. truth that is so mm-hmm.
1: strong. So I mean, what are we formed by? And then I I think what are inputs, and then. Going back to this, how do we humanize mm-hmm. the situation, I think is a really big key. The filter is the eyes of Jesus, the ways of the kingdom, yeah. and love, right? That has to be the question for us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, we we have to be able to see what the right lens... If we don't have the right lens on when we even come to the to the table, right, how do we... How do, we, uh, how do we get to the ways of Jesus if we don't have that lens? And so like even if we go back to this Israel-Palestine, I'm not trying to put a bow on this or anything like that because <laughs> that's impossible. But this question becomes, who is the oppressed and who is the oppressor? That's the question everybody's trying to ask right now. And then everybody gravitates towards one side or the other. Well, who is the oppressed? I can think of all of the Palestinian people, some, several that I know, that live under the fear of a rule of Hamas that is a terrorist organization. They don't want to live under that rule, right? But what happens? You live in fear that if I can't do anything or my life will be taken,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. right? I think of the anti-Semitism that is alive and well around the world and the Jewish people and how I have so many friends that I would stand up for and fight for, right? So who is oppressed? Both of them. Well, who are the oppressors? Right now, both of them, right? This is, this is like you, you can see it through the lens of, you know, conflicts and who's doing what, but when you, you humanize it of like, this is people, these are lives, mm-hmm. right? It, it does help us to be able to, I think, see this through the lens of how Jesus would see this conflict, right? Mm-hmm. It's about the people. It's about responding in, in love, regardless of what it costs you you know, yeah. and um, humanizing current issues that we wrestle with, mm-hmm. you know, how many people it changes when you know somebody, which changes when it's a story, It changes when it's flesh and blood. Yeah. Just, it's just, it's just different, right? I feel so vastly out of depth
0: to even begin to have a conversation about Israel and Palestine. Like, like, as we've been sitting here this whole time, it's just like, like I was saying, that's why I, like, I... I don't consume the news on purpose and I uh, will make no apology for that. And I, but at the same time, all of this is happening at all, like around me where, um, just friends and communities are taking sides or having conversations about it. And just knowing Matt, that you've like spent a lot of time in Israel. Um, you talked about the, the moving the walls around for, you know, Israel to have the best parts of, of that land, which in America we would call redlining. Um, I th- you just said it so fast. Uh, I would love to like just know more about that.
1: Yeah. I mean this, that's just a reality of the situation of Israel is the you know the military superpower. They're an advanced society, technology and things of that nature. And even though there's two people groups occupying the same land, everybody knows there's one people group that really is in control. Right. You know, the West Bank is supposed to be like Palestinian kind of dominated. Um, Well, it's not. Israel ultimately says, you know, and, and their past and their trauma obviously informs how they how they how they rule, because they understand that everybody around them wants them wants them gone. It really is. I mean, it's mind boggling to think a small little piece of land the size of New Jersey is the center of the world and that every people group around them wants to destroy them. I mean, you have Hezbollah to the north, you have Hamas to the south, you have Saudi Arabia, Iran, right? I mean, everybody wants them gone. And so you can imagine, not justifying what they do, but you can imagine it's like their guard is always up. And you have these people groups that come in and say, well, there's a two-state solution where you can both coexist. These are two groups of people that see the world as different as you could imagine in every possible way. And they're claiming that both the land is holy for both of them. What do you do when two religious groups are saying, that's my holy piece of land and I'm never giving it up? Mm-hmm. Right, and so it is. It's it's difficult because you, you know, you have oppression on both sides. But people, especially in the United States and the church, for whatever reasons and means, we kind of look the other way when Israel oppresses people. Uh, America has always had a unique relationship with Israel because they're a democratic society in the midst of societies that don't have that. There's this Judeo Christian values that we feel this connection with Israel because of, you know, our our faith. Uh, and, like I said, there's a lot of really bad theology out there that I think is Israel is the key to eschatology in the future. and so we kind of let them do what they want to do, and we look the other way and we critiqued everybody else when there's absolute oppression happening mm-hmm. from them. That's the layered complexity that when you even start to delve into topics like this, it's frustrating to me because you'll have people who are, I mean these these you know, Palestinian, marches right now that can't see the other side of things, and then you have a lot of pastors and churches right now that are just like, we're pro-Israel no matter what. Mm -hmm. Really? Would Jesus critique the people of Israel for what they're doing? Yes. I believe he would, Mm. right? So you don't get a free pass because of your heritage. Which is where it's like so messy because it's
0: like, it's too nationalistic- uh, viewpoints coming come, in, come to head, and then two, I I don't know the right word for it, but the, the religious viewpoint that both believe that they're one hundred percent right, and I mean how how just yeah. how,
1: <laughs> and you can trace the history back thousands of years, and both of them will claim that we have the right based on our history. Mm-hmm. I mean from the times of Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael, and you know yeah. I mean it's mm-hmm. it's yeah. it's mm-hmm. uh it's complex.
0: I mean obviously there's like there's all of the history, but if you were to remove all of the history and we're just like, okay, now it's just this year. And we had one group of people attack and, you know, kill 1300 people. And then the other responds with what, you know, everybody is essentially is calling genocide just because it's killings of thousands and thousands and thousands of people and destroying the entire infrastructure of, of the place. And then, You know, I hear other people talk about how this is exactly how America would respond if Mexico would have, you know, stormed the border and, you know, killed 1,300 Americans. We would be bombing the living hell out of Mexico right now. That isn't to say that America would be right, because we would be having a different conversation. We would be having a podcast right now about how America needs the critique. um, Because, I mean, ultimately, I, I know that I believe myself to be a pacifist, and I think that Jesus... Teaches us to be a pacifist. Uh, this
1: leads to other conversations of just war in general, yeah, and the ways of Jesus, yeah. right? And is war justi- ever is war ever justified? Yeah, and justified responses to violence or things like that. Yeah, are we justified to respond with brutality again? Like I said, because somebody's been brutal to me. And there's plenty of people out there who love Jesus wholeheartedly, pastors, spiritual leaders that would say absolutely. Absolutely, you can respond with brutality if your security is questioned. And as hard as this is for me to say, I would say, go back to the life of Jesus, and you find that for me. Yeah. You justify that through the lens of the new covenant.
2: Yeah. (laughs) You say an eye for an eye, (laughs) but I say, (laughs) yeah.
1: And then if we wanted to continue to play that out, well, what if that meant my security in my life? To which Jesus would respond often. Your life's not your own. You lay it down. You know, this is brief. What's next is eternal. You know, that's the part of really the ways of Jesus that I think some people will get up to that point and be like, mm, Yeah. I don't know. I think I have to jump off the train right there.
2: So I think the question is like, what do we in this room do with the conversation that we're having today? With all that's going on in the world and like how do I mean I think maybe even even just that, even that question, what I was about to say is how do we respond? And that because that's what you know, we naturally want to do is like respond. Um, and maybe that's even the wrong question. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what question to ask?
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> that's the first thing.
1: <laughs> I felt, I mean, did you, I've always felt that way as a pastor. It's like everybody you always have to have a response to everything. Yes, But even during like COVID year and things like that, it's like everybody needed a statement on where you stand on everything.
2: Which is what we, that's what we said at the beginning. Right. I want to tell me what camp you're in. Exactly. That's why people want a response is because they want to know, like, do you feel the same way that I feel about this? Okay. You do. Cool. Yeah. Let's go.
1: Maybe the answer is that you just wrestle faithfully. Yeah. And lovingly and with humility in difficult topics and you let go of this need to have it figured out, or you don't have to fall into a specific camp, mm-hmm. right? You, you guys, you know, city church context all the time. I'm telling people, I mean, your primary identity is you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That has yeah. to be the lens. Yeah. So you don't, no other camp is going to give you
2: mm-hmm.
1: your primary identity. Yeah. And if we truly believe that, then, you know, we wrestle faithfully, we res- wrestle well, we don't feel like we have to, jump on a bandwagon or mm-hmm. have it all figured out. Yeah. Um, especially on something like this, mm-hmm. where we're not experts and there's layered complexity beyond our ability to even grab a hold of it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I would say, you know, above all else, something like this should bid us to our knees <laughs> in prayer. Yeah. You know, like that, not in a uh well, I guess all I can do is this, but in a, like, I believe that this changes things and I'm going to genuinely seek the Lord and pray for how I should engage the world and pray for, you know, his will to be done in this situation for peace, for comfort, for, you know, all of that too. Um, I think response is so public prayer is, personal, private, deeply forming. That's just what I keep going back to.
0: All right. Well, I think we can wrap up the conversation there. To end, I say we just practice prayer and practice the prayer that we are currently working through as a church and just say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and glory and power forever and ever. In Jesus' holy name, amen.